0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the MTG Novels Project 0.4. Today we will continue our reading of The Colors of Magic by, edited by Jess LeBeau. But first I want to give out a shout out to Coach at the Car Bazaar for the inspiration and the ideas. Please check out the comments for links to his uh, first three novels he has done and his YouTube channel. I also want to give the full disclosure that I have had a speech impediment early in life, which I have tried my best to overcome. Also apologize if you find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I am trying my best to provide you with the best content I am able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear constructive feedback which crooks pronunciation issues and provides other realistic feedback that could improve the project. A legal note, this is an unofficial audiobook with original content belonging to Wizards of the Coast. This content is covered under the 2017 is of the Coast fan content policy. Listener discretion is advised. So we are continuing with white. White is the color of temptation and innocence, purity and civility. People characterize this cover love life and longevity, but do so without excess or grandeur. Some see white as childish, a return to youth. The know it to be filled with focus and desire to live an uncolored life. White is for the honest, the righteous and the eager, the decent and the civic minded, who stand up to protect justice and honour. It is the colour of the plains and temples, the colour of the scholar and the virtuous knight alike. White is for those who believe in a cause and believe in themselves, for those are unafraid to stand up in the face of adversity. Reprisal by Tom Leopold It is late, but I am too excited to sleep. A young man like myself, with no little experience, rarely gets such an opportunity. But I am determined to make them proud. I am determined to save my nation honorably. And there is no telling where it might lead. From the Journal of Finroy of Tariel I grew up in a tiny village of Tariel, some 80 miles outside Jornstad, the seat of power of eastern Kelsdor. Although Tariel was a small town, it was located along a major trade route. It was constantly busy, caravans and travelers arriving at all hours of the day, soldiers and diplomats faithfully executing the orders of the king, and merchants offering their wares to those who passed through. My uncle was one such merchant. He was a successful jeweler and a man of deep wisdom. When my parents succumbed to the plague, it was he who took me in and raised me as his son. He taught me to think critically, and he taught me his trade. We both knew I was destined to be a jeweler. I wanted to be a historian, and my uncle graciously agreed to provide financial support. So the day after my 18th birthday, I left for Jornstad to pursue my studies at the Institute of Higher Learning. Although I was anxious to leave home, I did not relish the journey. By law, we were required to travel under an armed escort. Dangerous creatures of both the two-legged and four-legged variety roamed the wilderness. The Dominarian landscape had been changed forever by the Brothers' War. The furry unleashed by Urza and Mishra. Has caused massive climate shift, from which the land had still not recovered. The apocalyptic war ravaged the w- whole world, bringing with it colder weather and upsetting nature's balance. The lower temperatures caused terrible food shortages, and the creatures that did not die outright became more aggressive hunters. Some of the larger ones were notorious for harassing travelers. Giant hi- insects, dog-headed serpents, beasts of every ilk roamed the wildlands. Of these the most feared were the worms, massive creatures that slithered along the ground, similar in every respect to the dragon cousins, but without wings or legs. One in particular was said to plague the city of Jornstad. Indeed the locals had named it Rindl. He was enormous even for a scaled worm, with sparkling orange eyes and the scales of a thousand battles, or so I was told. Many a merchant's caravan was lost on the road between Tariel and Jornstad. I do not know how many went down to Rundle's Wicked Claws, but survivors told frightening tales. They told of a matched creature as stealthy as a shadow that lurked just beyond the torchlight and waited for the proper moment to strike. The beast was said to possess an unusual intelligence and perhaps that was the most frightening thought of all. Few people ventured outside of town after dark. Thankfully, my little party did not encounter any such horrors. There are no fantastic two-headed creatures or wing predators. The true wonders awaited me in Jornstad. I was used to the hustle and bustle of a busy town, but Jornstad staggered my senses. During the day, it was a swirl of colour and sounded like a perpetual carnival. Merchant and passenger caravans constantly came and went to the city's sturdy gates. The main avenue was adorned with towering poplar trees and colorful banners, and it ran through the well-kept gardens known as Rothschild Park. An exquisite marbled fountain adorned Rothschild's Park, where two stone lions wrestled in the splashing water. In the summer, short as it was, the park was alive with the buzzing of insects and flowers of a thousand hues magicians and theoretical performers sometimes offered free shows where crowds could enjoy a brief respite from the chill. When the colder months came and the trees had lost their leaves, the gardens were no less enchanting. The stillness wove a different kind of magic. It was a world of mute snows, punctuated only by the laughter of children, building snowmen and throwing snowballs at each other. Beyond the gardens, was the hall of activity in Jornstad. Shops, pubs, and meeting houses lined both the sides of the street. Tobaccoists mingled with the wizards, beggars, and sculptors. Preachers and blacksmiths walked along, carpenters and scholars. Street performers with trained animals tried to impress passers by as messengers rushed past, delivering correspondences between businesses. The aroma of bread and fish cakes wafted through the air from the street vendors who were selling their wares to hungry travelers. It was a delightful mix of diversities. My f- first introduction to George Dowd was an intoxicating experience. After attending the college for almost two years, I was at last beginning to feel comfortable in the city, and it was a place I was proud to call home. The sun had just reached its zenith on a cold, cloudless day, and I was trying to work up the courage to ask Avara, the baker's daughter, to accompany me to the snow festival. I leaned on a tree some distance away, admiring her long blonde hair woven into a single braid. She enchanted me with her blue eyes and a teasing grin. I breathed deeply and prepared to make my move. My young Finroy may have your assistance. A familiar voice called behind me. I turned to see the schoolmaster, Jared, a warm and affectionate man in his late fifties, with hair as white as his smile. He was kind to everyone, and I was his favorite. The rumor among the boys was that he was quite a war in his day, but I never really could believe it. His unassuming way made him an instant friend to one and all, and he seemed to know everyone in town. What is it? I asked. He breathed deeply, staring the movement, I think. Duke Devryox approached me this morning about finding a young man from the school for a special job in the royal court. I thought I might know someone from among the boys for, for such a challenge. It would have to be a bright boy, with a sense of adventure, able to think quickly on his feet. I slugged, deeply disappointed. Had I even been considered? I'm not sure, sir, I answered. Thaddeus or Shabu maybe they're quite smart a smile broke across his withered features I recommended you he said after a brief pause shaking my hands Congratulation Finroy the job is yours if you want it After a stunned silence I gained my composure In my excitement I almost forgot to ask What is this job exactly Well Duke Deveriox didn't say he's a very powerful man and if he said it was an important job, you can bet it's the opportunity of a lifetime. He said you may even have a chance to work under Lord Rothschild himself. Lord Rothschild. The region had many good years under his reign. Farmers and merchant alike prospered under his rule. Men idolized him. Ladies swooned for him. Every child emulated him. Peace with Balduvia, uneasy as it was, had begun to take root. Food was plentiful. Everything was going well and Lord Rothschild got all the credit. During the fifth year of his reign, a popular movement began to immortalize his likeness on the currency. Everything was paid for in Rothies, which bore the inscription, Lord Rothschild, Will of Iron, Tongue of Silver, Heart of Gold. Rich traders donated money to erect larger-than-life statues of him in town squares. Competition broke out, as each wanted to be the sponsor of the largest and most beautiful statue. His face was everywhere. Working for Lord Rothschild would be an amazing experience. Shoulder to shoulder with one of the greatest leavers alive. I could study his every move and see what made him shine. I was enormously flattered that Jared would recommend me for such important work. Of course I would seize the opportunity. If I had taken the position, would leave me in the college and my studies were not yet complete. All would be the best, I thought, but because they did not teach what I wanted. I learned the most. I was no wizard, but I was seeking to understand the meaning of white magic and the significance it had for all Kajalderians. Kijod- I knew only that it was our history, our present and our future. I got no sleep that night. The thought of meeting Lord Rothschild the next day had my mind racing in a million directions. The dormitory seemed too quiet. There was not at the usual shen- shenanigans of the boy sneaking out after dark playing cards or dice by candlelight. I wish there was something to distract me, but it seemed to me it seemed to be just me and the night. The next day I woke early, donning my finest rail mints, and made my way to the palace. A gate guard ushered me to sit inside the sitting chamber where I was to be interviewed. We made our way through the stone corridors to the lighted doorway. My nerves were rattled to the edge of fear. I was to meet the man who many insisted would someday rule all Theresia. I swallowed hard and continued down the corridor. As I approached the threshold, I heard two men talking. I could tell by an unmistakable smooth drawl that one of them was Lord Rothschild. He began with a chuckle. I really don't need a valet, you know. That's what I have you for. My lord, replied the other man, who could only have been Duke Deverox. His voice was as crisp as a ringing bell. As distracted as I am over the Ferris estate, I am unable to devote my time exclusively to you, as a man of your standing rightly deserves. Ah, well, just see that he doesn't get in the way. I'm sure, my lord, you'll find the boy to be most capable and trustworthy, in his time go to rely on him. The conversation stopped abruptly as he entered the room. Lord Radchow was stretched on a low couch. Loosely clasping a goblet of the mead, in an easily friendly manner, and sipped the mead often. His sandy hair and sparkling blue eyes complemented a pristine blue tunic that had likely never known a crease. A sly, lopsided grin spread across his boyish face. To actually be in Lord Rothschild's presence was thrilling, and I felt a little dizzy at first. The man radiated charisma, and seemed to be the embodiment of every noble trait. He bade me to sit on a high stool in the center of the room, and the interview abruptly began. The two quizzes quizzed for me almost two and a half hours. Lord Rothschild asked me simple task-related questions. Did I know how to read and write? Could I demonstrate my knowledge of courtly etiquette? Deverock's contrived strange scenarios for me to work through. If Lord Rothschild spilled a spot of soup on his shirt, and I was unaware of it, how would I handle the situation? What was the proper thing to tell a foreign dignitary if Lord Rothschild wasn't unavailable? I answered all the questions best as I could and must have impressed them. They asked me to remove the room for a time so they could discuss my performance. When I returned, Lord Rothschild stood up and offered his my hand. It is my pleasure to import you the honour position of interim Roy regal overseer, he said, as if speaking in an, at an unofficial unoffic- gathering. I wish to welcome you to the royal court with all the honours and privileges thus concurred, conferred. You shall perform all the tasks of guard of this noble position for a period of one month, after which your performance will be evaluated. If your performance pleases me, you shall stay on permanently." We shook hands, and the lord excused himself to attend to important affairs. Deveraux took me aside as Lord Rothschild left the room. Son. I want to explain a few things to you, he said, "Get right to the point. But the regent is a high-maintenance man. I expect you to fulfill his every need in a timely and respectful manner. But that's just the beginning. Lord Rothschild loves the people of door and he expects them to love them back. His untainted public image is very important to him, and it's up to you to see it stays that way. Let me be perfectly clear about this, he said pronouncing every word carefully, as dark clouds gather across his face. The price of failure is high, especially for a mong man like yourself, with his l- whole life ahead of him. It began to dawn on me that maybe I was in over my head. The next day I arrived at the palace gate at the appointed time, with my possessions in hand, and waited for Doof Deverax to lead me to my quarters. On either side of the gate stood a soldier of the royal guard, sworn to protect Lord Rothschild from harm. As merchants, servants, cooks, and carpenters passed through the gates, the guards made note of who came and went, and expected their wares. Other guards patrolled the outer walls high above, but in general the atmosphere is relaxed. Lord Rothschild could afford this lack of security, because there is not a soul in Jornstad who had not prospered under his reign. My quarters were located in an area adjoining the Royal Palace. It was an area that was restricted to most, but to which I was to have free access because of my duties. The quarters were comfortable, but by no means extravagant. With stone walls and only one window, to t- it tended to be a bit dark most of the day. I stashed my belongings quickly and made my way to the meeting hall, where I was to convene with Duke D'Avrox for a briefing. That task before you will not be an easy one, he said sternly. I hope you're up to it. You were selected because you were the brightest in your class and a quick thinker. Things will not always be the way you expect them to be, but your job will be to always put Lord Rothschild first. If he stumbles, you'd make sure he does not fall. If you should make a mistake, you're to see that it is corrected. My, he reviewed my duties and his expectations. He stressed the importance of the job I was undertaking. Casual doors, enemies were forever looking to our borders for a sign of weakness. Our leader was more in a symbol of freedom. He was the foundation of our freedom. He explained to me that the politics of the court as well. The king and his wife, Lady Rothschild, were not on the best terms. He warned me that Lord Lord Rothschild, sorry. He warned me that Lord Rothschild was what the Duke referred to as a free spirit. And that did not sit well with Lady Rothschild. It was a politically motivated marriage. A Calgadorian king and a Balduvian queen. Just the thing to bring peace to the warring factions. It worked for a time too. The war had moved off the battlefield and into the domestic front. The sides had for a while ceased to be represented by wily generals and battle-scarred troops and instead had been trading for a pair of bickering spouses. Although the court tried to portray the world couple as close, the cold and political nature of the marriage was common knowledge. She, wasn't, she was unpleasant to look at and not well liked. But even if she had been the fairest creature in all of Teresier, all the women of Caljador would have hated her for envy. After the conversation, I set out on my own armed with Lord Rothschild's official schedule. I headed to the off archery range where I have been told Lord Rothschild would be practicing until late afternoon. The range was deserted, so I wandered the palace grounds trying to find him. I acquainted myself with the new surroundings as I walked, asking the service and gardeners I encountered if they'd seen Lord Rothschild. By late morning, I at last caught up with Lord Rothschild. He was sitting on a box in a royal distillery, sampling the various spirits. He noticed me immediately. ''Come hither, young Finroy,'' he called, ''sit with me and share the solace of a smooth port wine.'' ''Yes, your highness,'' I answered, as I pulled up a cra- crate and sat with the most revered man in all of Door. Although my nerves were rattled by the presence of his majesty, his easy way helped to temper my nervousness. I'm sampling a variety of blends for my, for my upcoming meeting with Lord Barris of Ojam, he said, gesturing to four half-empty boxes behind him. It's so important to have the beverages at meetings between leaders. The proper drink can lubricate the political machinery. That's the secret of diplomacy. The Bauduvians' bloodthirsty urges could never have been subdued with a wine fine as these. A harsh people like that require a harsh drink, a drink with savagery and bite, the kind of drink that hacks at your tongue and leave you for dead. Once you understand people, it becomes plain that only cackleberry gin is right for one such as they. Serve at negotiations, and you're bound to earn their respect. I sat with him for hours as he expounded his theories of diplomacy through alcohol. Lord Rothschild could engage Listler. On just about any topic. In the days that followed I discovered that Lord Rothschild's official schedule was to be interpreted loosely and he was most often in the place he least expected him to be. Searches would often yield surprising or occasionally embarrassing results. He could often be found in the royal gardens deflowering one of Lady Rothschild's many handmaids or rolling in the hay with the stable master's daughter. It was if he wasn't in either of those two places, a trail of empty bottles usually led the way. I began to wonder, with all of Lord Rothschild's commitments, he managed to find time to rule. Deverox always seemed to be at the of estate, though, to cover for him. The best course of action seemed to be leave Lord Rothschild to his own affairs, but my job wasn't any easier because of it. If Lady Rothschild wanted to take a stroll through the gardens, at the wrong time, it could inspire a domestic in- incident. I had to make sure that that didn't happen. The Lord was reckless with his reputation, so I learned to be ever at once. Lady Rothschild hated it when he drank, and he drank cons- constantly. The best guy could do was to keep the conflict to a minimum. But for all his failings, when Lord Rothschild took the podium, the magic began. He could spell by an audience with his smooth and easy ways. Waking them into a patriotic fervor or soothing them to a quiet hush. It was as though he were a conductor leading a symphony orchestra. For his part, he loved the adulation and would promise them anything just to hear the applause. Sometimes I wonder if he really knew what he was saying, but his words were so sweet that it didn't matter. His public appearances were always great events but the people of Jornstad were especially excited about seeing him at the snow festival where he would promised to joust with Sir Udo, champion of the lands. Devrox informed me that there are big plans for Sir Udo. He was assigned a regional governorship, or dima- diplomatic position. Devrox and Lord Walchard wanted to bolster Udo's popularity and what better way than public association with the most popular figure in the land. It was his concern for how the masses felt that kept our nation strong and stable, said Devrox. The contest was to be the following day, so after my usual duties were completed, I headed to the armory to polish Lord Rothschild's armor. I stepped into the room where few were allowed to go, and set down the cloth and bottle of oil I'd brought with me. It took a moment to gaze upon the contents of the royal armory. I'd never seen so many weapons in my life. Rows around rows of pikes halberds, hammers, and swords. Every sort of ranged weapon was there, from fine elven bows and javelins, to ordinary slings and armour of every sort. Some of it was comprised of tiny links, looking almost like wool sweaters. Other were plates with great sheets of overlapping metal. Still other pieces had scales like dragon skin. Those were no mere weapons, they were treasures, and this place was more museum than armory. Draped over a mannequin in the corner, center of the room was a breastplate and helmet, the armor that would protect Lord Rothschild from Sir Udo's ferocious lance. On its front, inlaid in gold and silver, was a stylized picture of a lion, mouth open in mid-roar, paws raged and ready to strike. The eyes of the lion were rubies which shone like the setting sun. Its claws were of inlaid ivory and lapis lazuli a high crested helmet sat atop the breastplate it was plated in gold and bold in intricate flower of pattern around the sturdy visor where there should have been blossoms the artisan who fashioned the helmet had instead set a variety of various precious and semi-precious stone the crest was adorned with a huge red feathers not, that were not from any bird i've ever seen the helmet's metal surface was unmarred by even the tiniest scratch I wonder if it had even been worn. Most kings would be satisfied if their armors were the, their entire treasure tove. The workmanship was exquisite, with a level of detail that only magic could produce. I didn't know how Lord Rothschild had acquired the breastplate, but it was—I was pretty sure—it wasn't made locally. For two, almost two hours, I polished the armor. When I was done, my arms ached and my back hurt, but the armor shone like the moon on a clear night. Looking at it, I could see my reflection clearer than in a mountain lake. The next day, it seemed as though every man and woman child in Jordanstad had turned out to witness the festivities. I was anxious to see Lord Rothschild square off against the popular Su'uru as anyone in the crowd, but I was a little nervous. I made my way past the conces- concessionaires staggering under weight of Lord Rothschild's armor, which I brought in a canvas sack. It was a little too warm for a snow festival, but everybody seemed to enjoy the chance to set aside their work and socialize. Children tug on their parents' clothing, coaxing them to buy a sugar stick or a rag doll. Kijeldorians, young and old, peruse the wares of the local armazons, admiring the workmanship of a designer cloak, or haggled over the price of a commendative Lord Rothschild fifth anniversary plate. A band was playing Live Freak Dor, a happier version of the traditional march. Love our dance at the strains of flutes and elven lyres. Music caressed the clouds and the smile was on every face. I walked to the stable area from where Lord Rothschild would enter the jousting Arena and positioned myself in the doorway. There I could watch the people go by as I awaited the Lord's presence. I listened to the music and searched the passing faces to see if I could find... Alvera. She'd truly be impressed if I came by and saw me working for Lord Rothschild. In a huge sea of faces I was unlikely to find her. By decided to lean around to the lo- wall look bored. I as if I hadn't had a care in the world, or case she could see me. Time passed, and still Lord Rothschild did not arrive. People began to assemble in anticipation of the joust. A harlequin dressed in red and white, taunted passer by in a playful fashion, he imitated their mannerisms through a dancing puppet. The creature almost seemed to have a life of its own, its strings the only giveaway. My thoughts turned toward Rothschild. He still had not appeared. He's a responsible leader and the most powerful man in the province, I kept telling myself. Of course he'd show. If he can run our kingdom, he can certainly show up for a major event like this one, especially one as important as this, where he's the main attraction. It wasn't working as of apprehensive as other. I stared at the rear screen and watched the shadow crawl across its face. Each moment felt like an eternity, and the crowd began to grow restless. Devrox entered the stable and looked around. I fidgeted nervously and tried to avoid eye contact. Saying nothing, he shot me a stare that could kill a charging warbeath, glares at me until I thought I could see what he was thinking. His eyes slowly wandered to the empty armor sitting on the floor. Abruptly he turned and left. Even now Deverks was probably headed to the palace dungeon, to find the most wretched dark cell in existence, a place where night and day would have no meaning, and rats could nibble at my fair, unurnished body, a place that would be my home until my dying day. I ran from the stables to the deserted streets, dashing from place to place. I checked all the usual hideouts for any sign of Lord Rothschild. There's no sign from the bathhouse, nor the usual gaming field. He was not found in the distillate nor the wine cellar. He wasn't in the armory, and I doubted they'd be anywhere near the library. My desperation grew, and I was all too aware that time was passing. I returned to the arena, foolishly hoping that he'd show up in in my absence. Of course he had not. No one had seen him, and his armor lay untouched. I saw no way out. I grabbed the armor and donned it as quickly as my hands would move, fastening the buckles and strings as best I could. I placed a great helmet on my head, lowering the visor. As far as the crowd knew. I was Lord Rothschild, and I would have to do my best to live up to his legend. I called a stableman to help me, and with much assistance, was able to mount the Lord's white steed. I hastened through the gates and into the arena before my good sense could stop me. Riding into the light from the darkened stables, I was momentarily blinded. I could, hear, I could hear the crowd erupt in a roar of admiration. For a moment, I basked in the glory and love of townsfolk. When my vision returned, I beheld Sir Udo waiting in the center of the arena. He was built like a war engine, solid as an obelisk. His armor was bright red with black trim, and it dazzled the eyes. Lights danced around him like shooting stars. Whether it was a trick of the light, my tired eyes, or magic, I did not know. He sat aside a coal-black horse. The stout beast's ebony hooves pawed at the dirt, and it impatiently dipped its head. The creature seemed barely able to restrain itself, so anxious it was for the crash of steel and the smell of dust and blood. A stable hand passed me the banner of casual door and lifted it up. I rode around the arena three times, as was the custom. Ladies threw flowers on the field and children waved. I waved back, concentrating on not falling off the horse. I could not see very really well since the helmet did not fit properly. And had become to twist a little left. Only one eye was lighted up with the view slit. The cr- crowd's admiration was enjoyable, but the deception ur- unnerved me. I was anxious to be done with it. I guided the horse to the far end of a long wooden fence and turned my face my opponent. Sir Udu waited with a cool reserve, confident in his ability. I swallowed hard, dug my heels hard to my mount, and in a flash I was off. The king's mighty steed rippling beneath me, gathering speed as I galloped for the night. My balance was precarious, having been jarred by the horse's quick start, and held on both hands. My lance, my lance tugged limply under my arm. The distance closed in a hurry, in fact far faster than I anticipated, and I was unable to lift my weapon very far, before Udu's first lance struck me square in the chest. The world receded as I flew back like a puppet on a string. Everything seemed so sudden. Sorry. Everything seemed to suddenly get very quiet, except for the screaming pain in my chest. I would have screamed too, except I couldn't believe. It was as though a woolly mammoth were standing on my lungs, while a fire burned inside. When breath at last came, I was only able to pant in quiet, shallow gulps. Each introduced me to a new world of pain. I looked around to see knights and squires, rushing to my aid. Gathering my wits, I staggered to my feet and waved them off, lest they remove my helmet and reveal my deception to all assembled there. I wobbled to the edge of the arena, desperately trying to look unwounded. I think some of the knights helped me as Devrus came forth to meet me, flanked by the Royal Guard. He dismissed the knights who were helping me, and I lost my tenuous grip on consciousness." Angels swam in the aether, singing the most beautiful melodies I've ever heard. Millions of blue and green bubbles, glowing with inner light, washed across my body like fireflies in a sea of liquid diamond. The angel song faded slowly, and a dull, thumping pain ushered me back to consciousness. I woke under the ministrations of Ariel, the royal herbalist, a woman in her early thirties. She had dark flowing hair and kind eyes. She wore a loose white blouse and a featureless coin dangled from a gold chain around her neck. I stared at the coin and realized my eyes were still too blurred to discern any details. A steady buzzing hummed in my ears. Ariel noticed I was awake. How do you feel, she asked. I don't know. I do seem to be in one piece. So what happened to you, she asked, as she applied a magic elixir to my wound. Um, A hunting accident, I replied, still too groggy to make up a decent lie. She smiled. A hunting accident. I was, uh, kicked by a horse, she continued. She continued to smile. Have you heard about the terrible blow Lord Rothschild sustained while jousting? Indeed, I said. How did he fail? He'll be fine, she laughed. Bit by bit, Ariel reconstructed me. As she wove spells and mixed potions, we talked. She told me the people of Jornstad were disappointed at Lord Rothschild's loss to Sir Udo, but were already making up excuses for the champion's defeat. Sir Udu was more popular than ever, and citizens were crying for me Dash. I didn't think I wanted him. I didn't want to think about it. I got two lessons in white magic that day, Lord Rothschild's armor it turned out it was enchanted with powerful magic. If the armor had been weaker, I'd been probably killed by the lands. Although my broken rib might argue the point, I had also had a first-hand experience with miraculous healing magic. Ariel's unguents and potions had me patched up, and with only a day of rest, I was able to get back to work. Ariel said she could. Ariel said she could work wonders on wounds far more serious than mine. Still, I realized that the power to heal, impressive as it was, did not keep casual doors and enemies at bay. Powerful protection was not the reason for a nation's greatness. There must be more, I thought. Errol advised bed rest for the remainder of the day. But since I really wasn't tired, I sat in bed reading adventure stories. Long after, Lord Rothschild stopped by to check on me. I wanted to scream, where were you? But of course, one does not speak that way to a king. So we both avoided speaking of the obvious. You're an astute young man, Finroy, he said with an air of discomfort. He was more subdued than I'd ever seen him, and there was a serious look in his eye. I'd be proud to have you as my regal overseer. You have shown your true mettle in performance of your duties. Admirably, congratulations. Thank you, sir, I croaked. (coughs) Well, the healer told me he'd be making a full recovery, he said, changing topic quickly. I'm glad to hear it. We made light conversation for some minutes. And in North Rothschild, which me well, and excused himself. Cut evening, another visitor appeared, Deverox, whose only interest up to this point had been to issue dark threats, almost saying to show actual concern to my well being. Your service to the king is rightly appreciated, he said. You are too patriot and an upstanding citizen of the nation of Kedjeldor. Even when granting compliments, the Duke had a foreboding manner. If I don't only heard his tone and not his words, I might have feared for my wife. Yet his actions were friendly enough. He petted me with a box of wafers, which were wet with some kind of paste. They were, he explained, a remedy his mother used to give him when he was hurt. The thought of Duke Devrock's having a mother was enough to make me smile. I sampled one, and it was the most wretched putrid concoction I'd ever tasted. Despite an almost overwhelming urge to spit out the pastry wafers, I choked them down one by one. This was the first genuine kindness I had been shown by this man, and I certainly wasn't going to insult him or his mother. I wondered why fork remedies were always so unpleasant. We talked and his counter was unusual. He told me that Lord Rothschild's father had died in a sporting accident when Lord Rothschild was only six. His mother had taken the following year by consumption. The young Lord Rothschild had grown up without any guidance, the adults in his life catering to every whim of the little prince. The Lord had developed a pattern of irresponsible behavior that could have been his undoing. His saving graces were twofold. He knew how to surround himself with very capable advisors and assistants, and he had a charming personality and a gift for leadership. Deveraux offered some very useful advice as well. He told me the places to look for Lord Rothschild at different times of the day if he wasn't where he was supposed to be. They were, of course, by no means certain, but hopefully they would be a template I could use to avoid for future tests of my jousting skills. Finally, he turned to go. When he reached the door, he said one last thing. You're an ambitious young lad. You could do well for yourself in this court. After my brief period of recuperance, I once again resumed my duties. My hands were full with Rothschild's social and diplomatic characters. In addition, he was scheduled to speak to people in the fortnight. When the time came, I attended the event which was rife with ceremony. He stood up to speak from his balcony, looking every bit like a man in his element. His voice boomed across the crowd, and it swayed like a cobra to his seductive thrall. The might of casual Dor shall echo in the Baduvian halls. I shall blow across the frozen fords of fun and horn like a blizzard. It shall lurk in the darkness, wrapping itself round the throat of the cowardly Lemdoul. The foes of Cajador will scatter like the chaff on the wind before invincible armies. In a symbolic gesture of Cajador's greatness on the morrow, I shall venture into the heart of the forest to slay the vile scaled worm Rindle. Its head will grace the town square for all to see an Eichel of Cadorian pride. The throng went wild. Is there no limit to his great list, they murmured, Kejindor is truly the mightiest nation heir Therese, Therese has ever seen. After the speech, my apprehension grew. So far Lord Rothschild didn't seem to have a very good track record of correspondences between word and deed, and I was the only one who had to live up to his promises. My spirits were somewhat assaged when I accompanied him to practice his fighting skills later in the day. How would you kill the creature, your majesty? I asked as we rode to the training grounds. Through cunning and glad, he answered. It will take a minimum of well-placed blows to fell the beast. Perhaps you can pacify him with cackleberry gin, I wanted to say. You worry too much, Finroy. I think because you don't drink enough. Or perhaps I should send you a girl to your quarters to ease your mind. I was only trying to be practical, sir. After securing our horses, we assembled on the grounds with some of the finest warriors in the land. Each demonstrated his or her technique, the Rothschild, while I held the weapons. The first lesson was in swordsmanship. Drawn targets were placed at intervals around the course and Lord Rothschild was required to demonstrate the ability he learned in each one. He stepped like a dancer across the practice field, and with graceful pirouettes plunged the sword into the straw effigies. His maneuvers were bold and reinterpretations that bore little resemblance to the originals. Though he rarely missed the stationary targets, I wasn't sure how this would help him kill the creature. I was confident only that Lord Rothschild could expertly slay straw mannequins. The next phase of his training was archery. The archery master suggested felling the beast with a poison arrow. Lord Rothschild seemed to like the idea, but was unable to master the intricacies of archery. Arrows flew hither and thither, and none found their mark. One came dangerous close to hitting the master, and Lord Rothschild called a hasty end to the lesson. I spent the rest of the day watching him wrestle with pikes and halberds, axes and slings. In the end, I'm not sure that any real progress was made, but Lord Rothschild seemed very proud of himself, so of course we all congratulated him. I shall cleave the beast's skull with one blow from this mighty axe, shouted Lord Rothschild as he raised Russian above his head and wobbled slightly off-balance. Oh woes to the foes of kajaldor I responded nervously. We packed our belongings to the banks and left the training field. Lord Rothschild told me he was eager to squirt off against the creature, and asked me to bring a bottle of wine and meet him the next morning by the fountain in Rothschild Park. My appetite was gone, and I got no sleep that night. When morning came, I dressed smartly and headed to the park to see Lord Rothschild off on the glorious hunt. I stopped to buy the wine from Jorgensen, the stuttering priest, and was off on my way by the time the sun had risen. I arrived half an hour early and waited impatiently. I could not help but think of the glory this deed would bring to Kejador and how the Baldruvians would treble when they heard. And then again, there was an outcome I hadn't considered. Lord Al- Rothschild might be eaten by the scaled worm, and the Balduvians might descend on the weakest kingdom reduced all of Kejador to smoke and ruins. I try not to dwell on that possibility. The sun crept higher and higher into the sky, and Lord Rothschild did not appear. I thought he probably wanted to be off and had taken an early start. I wanted to be sure though, so after two hours I headed back to the palace to find him. Wandering the palace grounds, I asked those I met if they'd seen North Rothschild. The gardener hadn't seen him, nay the maid. I could hear Lord Roth, Lady Rothschild conducting her own search for him in a shrill voice. I searched the archery range, the kitchen, the sitting room, and even the brothel, all to no fade. I made one quick check in the stables to see if Lord Rothschild had taken his horse. I opened the door and st- and stepped inside where i was greeted with the most disturbing sight blood rushed to my head and my knees weaking the only thing i could hear was my heartbeat loud in my ears my worst fears were confirmed lord rostos st- lay on the floor snoring loudly empty bottles strewed about him there were pieces of straw in his ruffled hair his shoes were missing and his pants run backwards the place reeked of alcohol and i started to feel like headed i realized that if Rendell's head failed to appear in a town square by the next morning, Devrox might put my head on display. Without thinking, I ran to the armory where Lord Rothschild's sword and armor sat sparkling in derb, dipped torchlight. I snatched the sword and bolted outside, my senses blinded to the world as I made my way through the narrow streets towards Fenhorn Forest. I plunged into the forest, recklessly zigzagging through the trees. The sky was overcast in the green needles of the Knif. Conifers and the deep brown leaves of the deciduous trees glowed in muted lights. On any other days, it would have been a beautiful sight, but today my world was dark, and the only sounds were the leaves crunching under my feet and the blood pounding my temples. For hours, I roamed the woods, alternately running and walking. I was prepared to throw myself at the beast if only it would show itself. After a while, I stopped to assess my situation. Alternate plans leaped into my head. I could kill the word. Several its head, I'd sneak back after dark and smoke the head into town while everyone was asleep. I was not trained as a warrior, but my one chance was to catch Rindle sleeping. First I had to locate its lair. Something as big as a scaled worm would have a hard time finding a place to hide. But as soon as f- but I soon discovered Findhorn Forest was a big place. I searched for places I thought the creature might hide. It would have a big p- it would have a big pile of leaves or a cave. I came across no cave. There were dead trees and rocks, but no scaled worm lurked behind them. I walked around in a daze, filled by hope. Hope of what? I wasn't sure. Did I really want to find this creature? Reality began to overtake me. I could not find the creature, much less slay it. My vision blurred and hot tears streamed down my face. Frustrated, I dropped the sword and collapsed amongst the leaves. The cold numbed my hands, but I didn't care. I wished the icy chill would overcome me and read me of my troubles. I lay there, not moving, as the wind whipped about me. I wonder how I managed to get myself into such a hopeless situation. I bemoaned my fate and cursed the gods and my foolishness. I don't know how long I lay there among the leaves, but it soon became apparent to me that the cold was not going to kill me. I was going to have to face my plight. I rose, picked up the sword, baby all but the- Barely able to hold it in my frozen f- fingers. Dark shadows had begun to engulf the forest. A light snow started to fall. Strange sound echoes about me, like a call to dinner for all the creatures to the woods. I realized that I had a frocious hunger. I had not eaten since the previous day. Without light, without light, my chances to kill Wendell were nil, and my chance of getting killed were almost certain. I heard back in the direction of town. I'd never been this deep into the woods before. The cold air stung my lungs and my chest ached where the lance of Sir Udu had injured me. The trees seemed to take on a leathery skin and reached out to touch me. Every mound of moss began to look like the scale wormed. Everything started to look at the same in the fading light, and an endless parade of trees streamed by me. I maintained my focus and continued towards home. I made it back relatively quickly. To reoccur I tore up the miles like a wild buffalo. Soon I could feel the warm embrace of Jordanstad and see the dwellings in the distance. As I reached the edge of town I walked past some outlying homes. I hung my head. My body was weak and my joints ached. I was disgraced and beating. I had failed Lothrothschild and perhaps set the stage for the downfall of Kejador. A great crashing noise from behind jarred my thoughts. I heard a terrible splintering and ripping of wood and foliage. It was though a hundred bolts of lightning struck the same spot in the same instant. I Spun around to see a medium sized tree reduced to killing. Above the debris towered the wicked Windle, even more impressive in reality than I'd been in my nightmare. His head was sleek and dragon knight. His blue scales glistened in the falling snow. A massive creature's eyes were pinpoints of frowning orange and spoke volumes about his ferocity. He looked me right in the eyes. The hunter had become the hunted. I dropped the sword and took an instinctive step backwards. The huge beep opened his jaws and let a fierce roar that shook the firmament. His whip tail whipped towards me, advancing like a snake tearing through the underbrush, and so enormous it took two full seconds to reach the spot where I stood. I struck my leg, it struck my leg, shattered my right thigh, and lifted me off my feet in a short and painful flight. My fall was broken by a dense thicket. Thorns tore at my skin as I hurried, trying to crawl to safety. Turning toward the village, I beheld a welcome sight. Allured by the noise, townsmen were pouring into the streets, rushing to my age. Some had swords, some had bows, but most bore the tools of the trade, or whatever else they could turn to a the weapon. There were barbers, arms with razors, carpenters with shovels, and hunters with harpoon. Some had had picks and shovels. Women brought rakes and torches, and all advanced with fearless determination. I turned my back to regard the beast. I stood some distance before between us, and the creature hadn't moved from the spot it had struck me. I didn't need to. Its huge neck extended. The huge doors ascended, and I could feel the creature's hot breath. One of the townsfolk hurled a short length of firewood at Rindle, striking it on the nose. The beast instantly closed his mouth and recoiled with a look of incredulity. The log could not have possibly done any damage to such a massive creature, but the beast was stunned that tiny brave such as this would dare to fight back. Taking advantage of the creature's hesitation, the villagers surrounded the worm. With each passing moment, more people rushed to the scene to help. Town guardsmen fired arrows into the worm's thick hide. One woman tried to sew salt in his eyes. Children threw stones from a distance. The creature was confused, like a spider being swamped by a thousand ants. There's nothing it could do. It advanced a few yards in one direction, stopped, and changed course. The villagers fought more bravely than a well-trained army. They fought like people defending their homes. The worm thrust about, spending more time defending itself than advancing on the town. The makeshift battalion continued its frenzied assault, until worms gave up. The creature turned and tore off into the woods, knocking down trees and tearing over large rocks in its path. They say the... Brave citizens looked at one another in quiet disbelief. None could have dared believe they could defeat a creature so dangerous. Yet by standing together, they accomplished what none could have done individually. Some were overcome by relief and odds. Others moved quickly to tend to the injured, who, along with myself, were taken to the healer. Miraculously, no one was killed. That night, a celebration began that lasted five days. Wine flowed freely and songs were sung to the glory of Kejildor. Poets composed epic poems ca- commensurating the events, and artisans carved statues and painted life size frescoes. The people of F- Jornstad marvelled at the wisdom of Orth Rachad, who through confrontation with the worm had taught them how to trust in themselves. He was hailed as the hero of the day. So that has been our last story within White i um, sorry, I'm just getting back to the name. I believe it was called Reprisal. Mm, sorry, lost my place. Yes, Reprisal by Tom Leopold. Thank you for listening.